Well, let's turn uh, our Bibles now to John chapter 7 for our reading this morning as we uh, continue our series in, uh, in John's Gospel, we turn to the, the book of books. John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He wouldn't go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Amen. May God's word uh, teach us uh, today. So this passage that we've just read uh, is all about the increasing opposition and hostility that there is uh, towards Christ. It divides into two obvious parts. First of all, verses 1 through to 9, it's about a conversation, rather tense conversation, that Jesus has with his half-brothers. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. And then the second half of the, of the reading has to do with him not now up in the north, but down in the south at the capital in Jerusalem, 
Uh, and uh, it's all part of the debate, his teaching that he has with the Jews, and in particular with his rulers. And both of these scenes, if you like, have this overarching theme of, of opposition and of, of tension and of hostility that is growing and that is developing. So let's look at the first one, the conversation with his uh, brothers. You can see as we just follow the verses down here that Jesus is choosing to remain up north, up in the backwaters, up in Galilee. And uh, this is because of the increased threat to his life. There are actually plans afoot uh, to have him killed. This all stems back from where we were in John chapter 5, the healing of the man on the pool uh, on the Sabbath day. They took tremendous exception to this and in particular to the teaching of Jesus that followed from that when he claimed that God was his father. And of course, they got what he was saying, that that was making him equal with God. And so the plans are developing for the killing of Christ. And so he remains up here in the north, away from where the epicenter is of, of, this, of this tension. But his brothers come to him. You see, it's, it's festival time. Again, this time it's a different one. Chapter 6 was the Passover festival. Six months from April down to about October, there is this next uh, national festival called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, same, same feast. If you want to get the detail of that, you read about it, for instance, in Leviticus 23. Uh, and Jerusalem is going to be hopping. You know, all the people go from all around the country up to the capital to observe this. Part of the interesting part of it was that people uh, made little mini booths, you know, little shelters, you know, with the cut down things and they, and they made these little huts. And uh, for the holiday season, they went and they lived in these places. And it was meant to celebrate God's care for the people of Israel as they traveled away back in history for those 40 years through the wilderness. And God provided for them as they were temporary structures that they had to live in until eventually they got to the promised land. And they were celebrating that. And for your interest, as the chapter proceeds... Maybe we'll get to this next week. And into chapter 8, there are a couple of points that Jesus fulfills here as far as that festival was concerned. There was a bit to do with light, and Jesus announces himself as the light of the world because they were led by the pillar of, of cloud, which was, um, uh, and the pillar of cloud turned into uh, fire at night. God led them. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And uh, later on, at the, on the last day of the feast, Jesus makes an announcement, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And they had a water-drawing part to this festival as well. Christ um, as the source of true and living water. So that's by the by, but all that is fulfilled in, in this particular festival uh, in Christ here. But uh, what they said was, you need to go up to this feast. If you, if you want to make it, if you want to be acknowledged, if you want to be something, if you want people to um, recognize you, if you want to make a big splash in the country, you know, you can't stay up here in the north. You need to go where all the people are. You need a bit of publicity. 
And so that was the advice that that his brothers gave to him. Uh, We know some of their names, by the way. You know, there's a verse in Matthew 13, uh, and uh, it tells us that uh, one of his brothers was called Joseph. Uh, There was one called Simon. There was one called James. There was one called Judas, or became known as Jude. And he also had sisters as well. Of course, they were, they were half-brothers and sisters because Joseph was not the father of Christ. Christ was born of virgin birth. He didn't carry anything of Adam's sin. He was perfect humanity. And none of these brothers and sisters believed on Jesus, which is actually really remarkable when you think about it. In fact, there is an instance when they actually come to take custody of him. He's teaching, and the word is, among the family, he's gone out of his mind, he's lost his mind. And so they actually come to try and forcibly take him home again. Isn't that remarkable? You know, 30 years in the same home, being brought up together, and they would have seen the kind of life that he led, that this wasn't fake you know, it was absolutely genuine. He was real and true. You know, he wasn't one thing publicly, you know, or on a Sunday, and he was something else in the family. You know, his life rang completely true. And, and, and they saw all of that. And yet, at this point in their lives, they, they still did not believe in him. And they, they were hostile to him. They found him irritating. They found him annoying. And they did not have any belief in his true identity. I'm sure their mother had told them the stories of Bethlehem, you know, and the wise men and the shepherds and everything that had happened as far as the birth of Christ was concerned, their half-brother. And yet, it was a brick wall. They had no belief in him. Now, that's quite a scary thing. And it sends a message even to us that we can live our lives round about Christ, so to speak. We can attend church events. We can be around Christians. We can be part of families where people are Christians. And yet we may not get it, and we may not have belief, and we may not have sympathy, and it might annoy us. And it's because, you know, faith is not something that we get by association. True living faith is not something that runs in our family bloodline. It's something that we need to come to personal faith and have a real and genuine individual experience of Christ. I mean, thank God that subsequently at least two of his brothers did come to faith and in fact contributed to our New Testament. James and Jude these writers of uh, these small letters in our Bible were the half-brothers of Christ. But at this stage, they were not believing in him. Christ picks up on two of the things that they said. They had said, show yourself to the world. And he says in reply to that, my time has not yet come. My time has, he says it twice, my time has not yet come. And he says this in other places uh, in, in Scripture. Now, the point about this is, I mean, it was only a matter of days, you know, and he would eventually, but not publicly, go up to the festival. 
But the point that he's making is, you know, any time is good enough for someone who's not a believer. They don't take into account the fact that God is in control and that God does have a design and a purpose and a plan and a timetable. And and Christ was very aware of that, about the timing of things. I mean, Galatians 4 makes that point as far as the birth of Christ was concerned. It wasn't random. It wasn't haphazard. It just couldn't have been any time. It was when the fullness of the time had come that God sent forth his Son. And in John chapter 17, when Jesus, on the night of his betrayal before his death, prays and he says, Father, the time has now come. You know, everything was aligning. God's design and purpose and and issues, cosmic issues that perhaps we are not even aware of in God's purposes were all coming together so that Christ would die just at the point when it was purposed that he would die. And it's good for us to just recognize that, that as far as Christ's death upon the cross at Calvary is concerned, that this is the centerpiece of human history. This is the event This was planned. This was something that things were put in place that were going to step by step lead up to this singular event, the key moment, so that we can appreciate the greatness and the importance of his hour, that wonderful hour that would finally arrive. And by the way, there are other things that are part of the design in God's planning. You know, the return of Christ, this plan, we don't know when that is going to happen, but Christ will return. The Father knows the day. Not even the angels know, but the Father knows. There will be a time when Christ will return and his kingdom will stretch from shore to shore. I was just reading this morning part of the book of Revelation and the timetable of events that God in his wisdom has mapped out as far as the future of this world. Some terrible, awful things for those who refuse to believe in Christ, but the wonderful hope of an incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away inheritance for those who love God. It's all part of the time. Second thing that he said as he answered them was this. You know, they were talking about, you know, show yourself to the world. That's the way to do it. Make the grand entrance. What he says in reply is, verse 7, You know, the world, let's talk about that. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it. What he's saying is, you know, fame is not everything. He's actually saying more than that. He's saying, you know, the way this world works, the way that it's all set up, the way that it's configured, you know, there is a whole system of thought and belief that actually is anti-Christ. And it hates me. And the world hates me because I expose it. Because I take the curtain apart and show it as it is and shine the light on it. And the world hates me because of that. It doesn't hate you because you're part of the system. You can see the tension between the brothers here. It doesn't hate you. You're part of that. I won't hate you. In fact, he has something more to say about this. If you turn your Bible over... Uh, to John chapter 15 and at verse number 18. The world hates you, 
Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's what he spoke to his disciples and taught to them. John, the writer of this gospel, takes this point up on his letter, his first letter, 1 John chapter 2, verse number 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We have to recognize that there are, there are different systems. There's the world's attitudes and ways and its lusts and desires. And it will pass away. And we are told as believers not to love that. Not to love the world. The world hated Christ. The world loves the people who loves its things. You know? It hates Christ and his followers. We have different worlds that we live in. We have different views. And, and that's what Jesus is saying here to his, his brothers. Okay. Scene two. Things shift. The journey is made alone, secretly, down south to Jerusalem, into the lion's den into the capital. Jerusalem is crackling with anticipation. Everyone is talking about him. You can see some of the things, some of the views, some of the opinions. Verse 11, the Jews, now when it says that, that's talking about the religious elite, the leaders, not the common people. And they're asking the question, where is he? Okay, it's almost as if they've got spies out, secret police or whatever. And they're asking, where is he? This is with hostile intent because they want to kill him. That's the plan. Where is he? You can see that uh, there are other views and opinions. Uh, there is a lot of muttering am among the people. You know, if you went into the bazaars, into the shops, into the coffee houses, everybody's talking about him. And they have different views. Some say, he's a good man. He has to be a good man. The kind of things that he's doing, he has to be fine. While others are saying... No, he's leading the people astray. He's a deceiver. It's all deceptive. You go further down, there are some people who in reply to Christ's teaching say, the man's got a demon. So there's a whole lot of things going on as far as the views of folks are concerned. The one thing that's missing, actually, is the opinion that Christ prized more than any. You know, which uh, he looked for when he asked his disciples, you know, who, who are the people saying that I am? And Peter eventually says, well, you're the Christ the son of the living God. You know, it's actually not good enough to say he's a good man. It's not sufficient. That's not really what Christ is looking for. He's a good man. It's to say that he is Lord, that he is God, the son, and because of that awareness and that belief that I have in his greatness, you know, I worship him, I serve him, I, I make that confession, I bow the knee of my heart before him. That is the kind of reaction that he's looking for. The reason that people 
only murmured and muttered in the backgrounds and in the recesses of the shops was for a particular reading, a particular reason, verse number 13. For fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So it's not going on publicly. It's in the background. And they're frightened. They're intimidated by the Jewish leaders. They know what their attitude is. And you can understand that. Of course you can. It's also a lesson, I suppose, for us as well, that sometimes there can be an element of fear and intimidation not to speak openly on our part as far as our belief in Christ, what we think about him, because we fear what people might say about us, uh, of the consequences that there might be for me taking a stand publicly and speaking out for Christ, just to be a secret disciple. Um, And so for intimidation, they, 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 they keep quiet. And then, verse 14, about the middle of the feast, suddenly, publicly, Jesus goes into the temple slightly different temple than the one that we heard about this morning. Uh, But he goes into the temple and he begins to publicly teach the people and they all gather to him and and they begin to listen to what he has to say. And there's a couple of elements of his teaching that I would just like to point out to you. First thing is this, uh, you know, they're they're astonished. Uh, They say, you know, we can't believe this man has this degree of learning. You know, he's never been publicly educated in our schools. You know, he doesn't have that certificate up on the wall. He doesn't have these letters after his name. You know, he's from Galilee. He lived uh, in a backwater, and he, and he was a carpenter. I mean, how, how is it that he's able to speak in this way? In fact, if you, if you go down towards the end of the passage, at verse 46, they actually send people to arrest him, and they come back empty-handed and... You know, and the retort is this. Never man spoke like this one. There was never a person who was able to speak and to teach like this man. This is remarkable. And they can't understand why he has that grasp and ability when he has not been properly educated in the schools and universities of the day and sat at the feet of the rabbis. And so, in response to this, Jesus gives a bit of insight into the power and the attractiveness of his teaching. And the first thing that he says, maybe three things I'll point out, he talks about the authority of his teaching, where it comes from. And what he says in verse number 16 is this, that my teaching is not mine, but it's him who sent me. And so he makes this presentation with this real sense of this is the word of God. You know, this is a message from God. And it comes with authority. You know, what the the, the rabbis did was they used to quote this particular source and they used to quote this source and they would compare them and it all came back as a bit pale and insipid. But he spoke with authority. This, This is God's word. Second thing is this, that in verse 18, he talks about the motivation behind his teaching. And he says there, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, 
But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. This is what drove Christ. This was the reason he did it. He had in mind the glory of God, that the God of heaven would be honored by what he did. Now, that's a fantastic message and application for us today as well. There are so many reasons we can do things. You know, sometimes we're always thinking about people and saying, I wonder why he said that, or I wonder what the motivation behind that action was. You know, and we can be motivated by many things. We can be motivated by pride. We can be motivated by advancement. We can be motivated by, you know, what's in this for me? You know, but to have as our motivation as Christ did when he taught, this is to be for the glory of God. Above everything else, that God's name and his honor are enhanced by what I do. I mean, that, that is how we should all be functioning. To ask ourselves the question, what is our motivation? You know, because at the end of the day, you know, that's what we will be assessed upon when we stand before God. You know, as, as Christians, when we, when we stand and are assessed as far as our service for God is concerned, 1 Corinthians 3, you know, he will look at that and he will assess that. Is that valuable or is it just straw? And the thing that he's able to do that we are not able to do is to look at our motivation and why we did things. It should be for the glory of God. Of course, people who are not believers at all will also be judged, you know, judged on the, on the basis of their belief in Christ or not. And sometimes, as Christ points out, people will say, you know, I, I did a miracle in your name. You know, we served you well. You know, we, we, were, we were in the vicinity of, of your people. And he said, I, I, I don't know you, you know. You're not allowed in. You know, you have to depart. No place here for you because I know what's in your heart. Never mind your remonstrations. I know where your heart lies and it doesn't lie with me. Motivation, the glory of God. And it characterized Christ. And there's a final point. Um, as far as Christ's teaching is concerned. It's really down at verse 24. That kind of sums it up. When, when, he, when he says to them, you know, don't judge by appearances, but judge with, with right judgments. You know, what, what he's really doing here is uh, he's, he's being fairly confrontational. You know, he's being brave. He's taking them on. You know, he's not just backing off, he's pushing back. And he says to them, you know, you need to be consistent. You know, look at, look at what you do. The thing that has upset you more than anything else is that I healed that man on the Sabbath day. And yet, and that you circumcise people on the Sabbath day so that you fulfill the law of Moses. And that's quite acceptable. And you do that. And yet here am I, and I heal a man and make him perfectly whole, and you're after me because of that. And you know what that's all about? He says, yes, it's, it's hypocrisy. Yes, there are double standards. But it's all about appearances with you. You know, what seems to be acceptable, what seems to be right, you know, what looks good 
You need, you need to get away from that and make a judgment that is not on the basis of appearance, but a right judgment. You know, and that's the way that God looks at things. And that is why they were hostile to him. He exposed their inconsistencies. And that irritated them no end. And they disliked him. And they opposed him. And they planned, of course, to end his life. Hostility. And that was the reason for their hostility. Because he told them the truth about themselves. And they didn't like it. You know, the word of God speaks to all of us today. You know, all of us. And sometimes we resist it. And it irks us. And it annoys us. And we don't like it. And by extension, it means that we don't like Christ. And we don't like the gospel. And we don't like his way. So we ask ourselves the question today, am I hostile? Am I hostile to Christ? Or am I like at least two of these half-brothers? Will I come round why change and love Christ? Be convinced by his words and his teaching. Accept them. Worship Christ. Be committed to him. He does polarize. The Bible still polarizes. And it's for us again just this morning to ask ourselves on what side do we find ourselves falling a wholehearted, committed believer and worshipper of Christ or, or hostile to Christ. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you that we are forced to come face to face once more with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and with his teaching. And Lord, we ask that as we, in these quiet final moments of reflection, as we've listened and we've read from the sacred scriptures with all its lessons and its challenges. Lord, help us to make the right move and help us not to stand in opposition to you and your word and your son, but to embrace Christ as our personal Savior and Lord and to live for him. Not for this world, Lord, help us, we are so weak, not to love this world. The one who loves the world is at enmity with God. Help us to love Christ, as we ask in his name. Amen.